Before we go any further, let's take a moment and pray. I ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes just for a moment as we pray together. I would ask just a couple of requests as we are going to the Lord that, first of all, that I don't believe there's a one of us in this room that has it all together 100% of the time. I don't believe there's a one of us in this room that just has arrived, so to speak, spiritually. We all have room for improvement. We all have room to grow. We all have things that we're working on. And these are the kinds of things that we need to ask God to help us with as we come into this time of worshiping in the Word. We've worshiped with music, and now we're going to worship in the Word. And I, I would just have this request that you would simply say, Lord, teach me what you would have me to learn today. God, show me an area of my life that I need improvement in. Help me to be honest about where I'm at in my walk with you. And God, whatever you reveal to me, might I be willing and humble enough to deal with it. So Lord, as we come before you in prayer as a body of believers, Lord, we humbly admit, Lord, we are not always where we need to be with you. There are things that we fall short in, areas that we fall short in, areas of obedience that we've neglected, things that we know are not right, but we just put them off, we put them to the side, deal with it later. Oh God, would you forgive us? As individuals, as a body of believers, as a church, I ask your Father, Lord, as we come before you, Lord, that you would reveal anything that is not where it needs to be. And might we be humble enough to admit it and willing enough, Lord, to change it with your help, with the help of the Holy Spirit. So, Lord, work in our hearts, Lord, today, beginning with mine as the preacher. I ask, God, that the words that come out of my mouth would be your words. And I ask your Father, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts as only you can. Lord, I have no convincing words of my own. But Lord, you do through the help of the Holy Spirit. Lord, you can speak. And I ask that you would. And Lord, as we are sitting here today, Lord, I know that there's a thousand other things that are probably going through in different people's minds. Challenges at work. Challenges with family members. Challenges with personal emotions. Challenges, Lord, on things that no one else knows about, but you know about them, Father. And I pray, dear God, that you would allow us just for a little while to set those cares, those concerns aside to concentrate on what you have for us. And I ask, dear Father, Lord, you speak to our hearts. May this not just be another service. May it just not just be another Sunday that we got up, got dressed, and went to church and went home. But, Lord, I pray that we would truly, as we're listening to your word, that we would ask ourselves these questions and respond appropriately. So Lord, thank you for each one that's here. I pray, Lord, that you would bring encouragement where encouragement is needed, bring conviction where conviction is needed. And I pray, Lord, that your will would be accomplished in and through this hour. For we give it to you, Lord. It's yours. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you would, take your Bibles again this morning and turn to Acts chapter 6 as we continue in this story of Acts uh, chapter 6, man, I, lo- I am loving this book. Talk about hitting everything that we need to work on as a church. 
Uh, talk about examples of what every church in America probably struggles with in various times and chapters of the history of the church. Um, but I want you to think about this. As I said earlier, there are no perfect churches, right? Uh, if, if you find one, don't join it. You'll mess, you'll mess it up. So I'm just telling you, you know, because you're not perfect as you think you are. And uh, I just, because you're all sinners like me, so I, I know that's just reality. Uh, so when God is at work, this is what I know. When God is at work, Satan doesn't like to let God's work go unchallenged. I've said that many times throughout the years. Anytime God is at work, Satan doesn't like that to go unchallenged. I've said that many times. And I believe that I've been witness to this very thing several times in our ministerial life. Uh, so today in our text, we see an apparent problem and a solution to the problem, right? Uh, by the way, have you ever noticed that when there is a problem, they're glaringly obvious? How many have ever seen that before? When something doesn't work, when there's an issue, it, it's obvious, right? Yeah, it's always obvious. It sticks out like a sore thumb. It sticks out like somebody in a wheelchair. It sticks out like somebody walking around with cast and crutches. It's just that obvious. And we don't know what to do about it sometimes. Um, but we can respond to problems in three ways. First, we can gripe and complain, which accomplishes absolutely nothing. Right? Uh, well, it actually does accomplish something. It just gets other people to gripe and complain. So when you respond with griping and complaining, it kind of just encourages everyone else. Like, well, I'm in good company. They're griping and complaining because maybe I'll just join in and gripe and complain with them. Right? That really works well not. Uh, number two, you can do nothing. See, I see this big, glaring, obvious problem, and my, my response to that big, obvious, glaringly obvious problem is to just do nothing and let it exist. Right? That's what some people do because they don't want to get involved. They don't want to hurt feelings. They don't want to deal with the issue at hand, so they just kind of do nothing. And, and the third thing you can do is pray about it and come up with a biblical solution. And uh, I would encourage you that that's the way we do it. But first, we can gripe, complain, which accomplishes nothing except for make other people more uh, you know, able to gripe and complain. You can do nothing, or you can come up with a biblical solution after praying about it. So let me make an ob- observation here as we read. If you would, just follow along as I read the first seven verses of Acts chapter 6. And uh, I'll be reading from the Legacy Standard. It says, Now in those days, while the disciples were multiplying in number, there was grumbling from the Hellenists against the Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not pleasing to God for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom you may put in charge of this need. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the service of the Word. And this Word pleased the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man of full faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, and a proselyte from Antioch. And these they stood before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to multiply greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So we have this first observation, it's this. God is at work, and so is the devil. So you got something good that God is doing, but Satan doesn't want to let God's good work go unchallenged. So what does he do? The number of disciples are multiplying in number. In other words, what we know from that, basically just from that simple sentence in Scripture, is that people were getting saved and disciples were being made. I mean, how much better can it get than that, right? I mean, what church in America, that if they're trying to live for God and trying to do what's right, wouldn't want to have that problem taking place? 
People are getting saved. People are becoming disciples of Christ. And the numbers are multiplying greatly. It says it wasn't just like one or two or three or four. It says greatly. I don't know what greatly means, but I know it's not just a couple, right? We know that. So, you know, God is at work. But anytime God is at work, we know that Satan doesn't like to go and challenge. So Satan's at work too. And here's his, here's his, here's his work. Grumbling between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. You see, what we have here is two sections or two sects of Jewish people. And uh, so there's grumbling taking place between them. You see, in the Jerusalem church, there were at least two types of Jews. Those up, uh, and those brought up in the Palestine who spoke, in Palestine who spoke Aramaic, and those who brought up in other places, uh, such as the Jews of the dispersion, you see about that in James 1, who spoke only Greek. And the Greek-speaking Jews were known as Hellenists, and throughout Palestine there was tension between these two groups. You know, there were the outsiders that were looking at them and saying, well, this group's getting treated better than this group. I mean, these widows are getting more food than these widows. Well, first of all, how do we know that? You know, I just, just, this is just me, but there's a tension between these two groups. I mean, I've, after all of the good that is taking place, I mean, this is like the third place and the third time in just the last couple chapters where we see that God is at work, where multiplied disciples are taking place, and somebody's got to bring out the fact, well, this is not fair. These guys are getting more food than these guys, and they're all in the same group. I mean, that's not fair. I mean... Picking up a fight that they don't that know. I mean, God's word doesn't tell us. We don't know that much about the situation. The Bible simply doesn't tell us whether one group of widows was actually being treated differently or better than the other group. We don't know that. But there's a group that's taking up the argument that maybe there is, and so we kind of go with the flow here. So this group is saying this group's getting treated better, and so we got to do something about it. And biblically speaking, can I just say this? That there is uh, um, not that many true widows. You say, well, in our church we've got a bunch of widows. We have a bunch of widows, but we don't have a bunch of widows in the biblical sense. And so let me explain that just for a moment. Uh, I spoke on this a couple years ago, but a true widow is one who not only has lost her husband, but also has no family or children that can help provide and take care of her. So most of widows that I know, even though they are widows, they have children that are available. They have family members who are available. A true biblical widow, the ones that the church was commanded to take care of, are not necessarily that group. It's the group that has no husband, that has no children, that has no relatives or family members or close friends that will take care of them. Those are widows indeed, according to Scripture. And so, obviously, there was these widows that were taking place. I'll assume that because the Bible uses the word widow, we'll go with the biblical definition but there, <clears throat> there is an argument that this group's getting taken care of better than this group. We don't know what the real situation is. None of us were there. God's Word doesn't go into great detail over it. Just that there's a problem. Satan, God is at work. Satan doesn't want to let it go and challenge. So we're going to cause you know, a distraction to take away from what God is already doing. And so we see in verses 2 and 3 here. It says, So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not pleasing to God for us to neglect the Word of God, in order to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this need. So to make sure that the daily distribution of food was handled fairly and in a right spirit, the apostles summoned the church to choose seven suitable men whom the apostles then appointed to look after the work. And it appears from their Greek names that those who were chosen were Hellenists uh, from their names only. But why was the church encouraged to choose deacons or men of good report? Well, very clearly here. The apostles, or if we could say it in today's vernacular, the, uh, 
uh, not necessarily just the apostles, but the leadership of the church, the, the pastors, the assistant pastors, the leaders of the, the elders of the church, they were to focus on handling the Word of God. We see that from verse 2 and verse 4. It says in verse 4, it says, But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the service of the Word. Um, it's kind of an awkward th- situation, but I'm going to kind of say it just because I'm, it's out there and it's right here. It's a, it's a hard thing for a pastor who has any skills and abilities to not use them. For example, um, I think if I were push comes to shove, I could about build an entire house except for maybe the cement work and the electrical. I, I can understand how to frame. I know how to frame. I know how to put in windows. I know how to put in doors. I know how to do all this stuff. And so when someone has a need, guess what? Hey, pastor, can you help me with? It only takes 20 minutes. Has anybody ever done a job that's supposed to take 20 minutes and it only takes 20 minutes? I'm telling you, Brian, maybe. Uh, so you know, get the idea here that if you've got skills and abilities, everybody finds out about them, and next thing you know, all your time can be spent doing other things. But what does God's Word say? We're going to hire a pastor, and he's the maintenance guy. Oh, I, I, it's in there somewhere. Maybe it's hidden in the Greek or Hebrew, but it's in there somewhere. But that's kind of sometimes the idea that we have. And yet God says in Clearly, in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, right? He gave some pastors, teachers, bishops, evangelists, so forth, to what? Equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, right? And so God has called us as a body of believers to work together to make sure things get done. So it's not the pastor's job or the assistant pastor's job or, or the elder's job to do the maintenance of the church. Although we do what we can. But the reality is sometimes you're going to get this idea that, well, he's got time. He's not the only... I mean, he only works one day a week. I mean, come on. I mean, that's, everyone knows pastors. And, and, and be fair, I don't even work one day a week. I work a couple hours on Sundays. You know, that's the idea sometimes. But God has not called us to do those things. He said, is it right that we should serve tables and neglect what we are supposed to be doing? And so that means that it presupposes the fact that God has laid out other people to do other things within the body of the church. But sometimes we overlook those things. They were to be focusing on handling the Word of God, and they were to be devoted to prayer. Let me just say this, and I've said it before, and I'll still stand true to it today. In my 20s, I neglected a lot of prayer. In my 20s, I didn't realize the necessity of it. In my 20s, I was too mature to understand how valuable it was and and how powerful it is. I didn't get it. But the older I get, the more I realize how important prayer is, how much I need it, how much I covet it, and how necessity, how much of a necessity it is for me to do anything of value from day to day. I covet your prayers. If, someone, if any one of you send me a text and say, Hey, Pastor, I'm praying for you today. Don't stop. Please don't stop. I need those prayers. I want those prayers. I covet those prayers. And I need to be praying for you in the same way. And that's what I strive to do. So they were to be focused on handling the Word of God and so, anyway, if you walk into my office, there's a lamp there on my table, and on that lampshade it says two things. Preach and pray. Because those are the reminders of the two things God has called me to do as a pastor. He didn't call me to fix the sink, to change the you know, wax ring on the toilet, or though I'm willing to do all those things. If it don't get done, I'll do it. The reality is, but that's not what God has called me to. God has called me to what? Preach and to pray. And that's where I want to spend the majority of my time. So that's the way God designed it. That's the way He planned it. That's the way we should be exercising 
this principle in Scripture. Number two, he says deacons were appointed to serve the church. It was the deacon's job to serve. And I'm thankful for our deacons who serve. And the reality is, it is they who God has called. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you want to keep your finger there, you can turn over to 1 Corinthians in chapter 9. Let me go back one more thing to elders being devoted to prayer. I forgot to mention these scriptures here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verses 16 and 17, he says, For if I proclaim the gospel, I have nothing to boast, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not proclaim the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have stewardship entrusted to me. So what's he saying? He goes, I have to do this one thing. I have to preach the gospel. And so I know that um, you know, the 20-minute job that's supposed to take me sometimes and most of the time doesn't take 20 minutes. It takes much longer than that. And so uh, we do the best we can to get all the things in that God wants us to do. But in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 13 through 15, it says this, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Who's he talking to? Preachers here. To exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the gift within you, which was given to you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. I can only imagine that if I didn't prepare on a Sunday morning, I just got up and just rambled for 40 minutes and said, and everybody walked up and said, man, I don't know what was going on with Pastor today. Maybe, maybe you've done that before. I don't know. Uh, but hopefully not. But it's my responsibility to make sure that I am studying and giving pains, as it says, to the study of the Word so that I can proclaim it as I ought. But when it came to the deacons, they were in essence called to take care of the physical matters of the church. Elders, pastors take care of the spiritual matters. Deacons were to take care of the physical matters of the church. However, can I say this? Even though God had called them to take care of the physical matters, they were to be godly spiritual men as well. Just as godly, just as spiritual as the pastor is. In fact, they were all to be godly men. And we know that from Scripture. In fact, God's Word tells us here in in Acts chapter 6 that there's basically three things that He said about them. They're to be men of good report. And basically, men of good report has the idea of this. They are men who are above reproach. In other words... If, if someone were to come up to you and say, man, did you hear what Brian said? Oh, Brian would have never said that. Come on. No, that doesn't sound like Brian. You know, that's what it means. Now, Brian may have said it. I doubt it. But we have the idea here that if he's above reproach, it's like, no, my first response is I don't think that. Maybe there's a miscommunication. Maybe there's some misinformation. But I don't think that. That doesn't sound like Brian because he's a man of, above reproach. And then secondly, it says, according to the text there in Acts chapter 6, that they were to be uh, men full of the Spirit. And this basically has two ideas here. They're yielded to the Holy Spirit and they're controlled by the Holy Spirit. Those two words are key words in the life of someone who is godly. Yielded means I am willing to submit my will to the will of the Holy Spirit. That means yielded. I yield my will, my desire, my plan to whatever it is that God has for me. Through the Holy Spirit's leading, I am willing to yield. But not only yield, I am controlled by. It's not my flesh that's controlling me. It's not my desires that are controlling me. It's not my whims that are controlling me. It's not my friends that are controlling me. It's the Spirit that is controlling me. And then number three, there to be men full of wisdom. In other words, what this means is there are men who apply wisdom to daily life. When there's a situation that comes up, 
there's an action or reaction, they're filled with wisdom. How would God want me to respond to this? What does the Word of God say regarding this situation? I'm applying the Word of God, the principles found in God's Word, to everyday life. That means they're full of wisdom. In fact, God's Word really talks about this. Well, what, how do I get that wisdom? In James chapter 1, verse 1, 5 says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So if we need wisdom, guess, guess what? It's available to us. God's Word says He not only gives it, He gives it how? Generously and without reproach, and it will be given to Him. So God is willing to do it. If you turn over one more chapter to chapter 3 and verse 17, He says this, But wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruits, without doubting, without hypocrisy. So the idea here is we have a man who is walking in wisdom. These are the things that should be evident. It's pure. In other words, it's not selfishly devoted. It's not because I'm not making this decision how it would affect me personally. I'm not doing what's better for me. I'm doing what's better for the whole. What does God want me to do? We see also verse 17 is not pure. It's peaceable. The wisdom of God produces ultimately a peace with others. You know, and sometimes when we make decisions out of selfishness and out of pride and out of arrogance or maybe just out of authority, how often does it produce in peace? Not often, because we're doing it out of a selfish ambition or out of a motive that is not pure. Then it says it's considerate. It considers how does it affect others? How is it, is it submissive? Is it full of mercy and good fruits? Is it without doubting? And people say, well, I don't know what I should do. I think if you don't know what to do, you shouldn't do anything. Someone says, well, I'm just going to do it and I'll, just, I'll figure out later if it was right or wrong. No. God's Word says, whatsoever not of faith is what? Sin. If I can't do it with a clear conscience knowing that God is glorified, don't do it. The last thing you should do is make a decision based on, well, I should do something. That's not going to result in something good. Oh, so I've heard so many people say, well, right, wrong, or lies, we're just going to go with it. That's not wisdom. So, Keep these things in mind. So they were actually lead in these matters. Look at Acts chapter 6, um, verse, verse 3. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we may put in charge. In other words, they were to actually what? Lead. And the church was to give, to give them the authority to lead. And so I have no problem... Let me say this and listen to what I'm saying. I have no problem giving authority to a man in our church to be a leader if he fits these requirements. If he is a godly man. If he is a man that is full of the Spirit, yielded, controlled by the Spirit. If he is a man who is applying wisdom to his daily decisions. I have no problem with that. It's the ones that are not walking with God. That are not walking with wisdom that are not being controlled by the Spirit, that I fear. Right? So if we do it according to Scripture, the way that we see God telling us to do that, there should not be a problem. So these were men were, according to verses 5 and 6, held in great respect. These men were held in great respect. Look at verse 5. It says, And this word pleased the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, 
And these they stood before the apostles. After praying, they laid hands onto them. These are men that the entire congregation said, listen, these are men who are godly. These are men who are full of wisdom. These are men who are spirit-filled. Let's lay hands on them, pray over them, and give them the ability, the authority to lead the church in these matters. So these men were held in great respect. These men were brought up before the church and prayed over. And this action that was taken by the church pleased the congregation. Now, I've been in situations where we didn't have men like this. Uh, my first church, um, the Constitution said I had to have at least four deacons. And I didn't have four deacon men, four deacons that fit this requirement. Man, I had a couple of people who are the owners of the church, been there for 27,000 years. They were angry with me. And I looked right at them and I said, who do you suggest? Well, I don't know. The Constitution says we have to have four men. I understand what the Constitution says. But what does God's Word say? And we went back and forth, round and round over it. And I'll just say it to this day. When I left that church, the church went from 215 to 20. They went from giving $48,000 a year to missions to about $6,000 a year to missions. And they went from a church that was doing something in the community to a church that does nothing in the community. It's sad. And I'll tell you, they brought in a bunch of guys who did not fit this description because the Constitution said. Folks, we need to get away from what the Constitution says and get back to what God's Word says. This is what will change a church. And so as a result of it, some churches are putting men in who don't fit the, re- the requirements. So what was the result of the church taking these steps? We see this in verse 7. When the church did what they were supposed to do. In other words, let me recap. The church was growing. The disciples were multiplying, it says, greatly. Then a problem arose. This group of Jews were, and this group of Jews, they were saying they're not being treated fairly. Let's develop seven men. Does that mean every church has to have seven? No. But it's the idea that we're going to choose men who are full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, you know, full of God, godliness, and we're going to give them the authority to take care of the work of the church. When they did this, guess what? Verse 7. The Word of God kept on spreading. In other words, because the pastors and the leadership of the church were able to do what God called them to do, and the deacons were doing what they were given charge to do, the church kept moving forward. I'm just going to tell you folks, when the pastors can't do what God called them to do and their hands are tied, the church will stop growing. Physically and spiritually. So that means we need men who are going to be godly, who are going to be spirit-led, we're going to be full of wisdom to do the work that God has called them to do. And when they do that, the Word of God kept spreading. The number of disciples continued to multiply greatly. And number three, great many priests were becoming obedient to the faith. That one's kind of a weird one, right? I mean, priests became godly and obedient. All I can say from that is this. The Word, because it's in there and in that line, it presupposes the fact that some of the priests weren't doing what's right. Not every pastor is doing what's right. Not every preacher is doing what's right. Not every priest is doing what's right. But under the preaching of the Word of God, we let the Holy Spirit lead, they'll make the turn. That's how any of us turn. I can't convince you to do what's right. 
I might try, right? I mean, I'm going to preach the Word. I'm going to preach it with passion. I'm going to say, hey, this is what God's Word said. It's not Ken's Word. It's God's Word. And you need to really start making these changes. And you need to start doing this or doing that and stop doing this. I may try to convince you, but who ultimately changes the heart of man? God does. The Holy Spirit does. But when we do what we're supposed to do, it gives God the ability to do what He needs to do. So the Word of God kept spreading. The number of disciples continued to multiply greatly. And other priests in Jerusalem were beginning to become more obedient to the faith. So let me just ask this question in conclusion. How can we practically apply what we're reading about here in Acts 6? I believe there's three things that we can do. Number one, if you notice a problem in the church, as they did, we can respond biblically. Griping accomplished nothing except for possibly causing more problems, right? So when we see a problem, don't just gripe about it. Don't just ignore it. Pray about it and see what God would have you to do. So there's a problem. They took it to the apostles, and the apostles said, choose men. We can solve this. I think there are, most any problem in any church can be solved if we're willing to go to the God's Word and let the Holy Spirit work and apply His wisdom. But as soon as a pastor or an organization or our leadership chooses to disregard what God's Word says and to kick out the Holy Spirit and to not exercise wisdom, you might as well write Ichabod over the door. The bottom line is we need to be in the Word. Secondly, we can pray for and respect the leadership of our church, which we're going to do that today. And number three, it may be that God wants some of you to step in leadership positions. You may be sitting here today and say, well, hey, I'm not, you know, I'm not a brand new disciple. I've been saved for a while and I'm maybe not a deacon or I'm not a pastor. I'm not an elder. I'm not a leader in the church. Can I just say maybe not yet? It may be that God has that for you one day in the future. So can I say this, number three? Live your life in such a way that God could use you should He choose to. Live your life in such a way that if God presses upon your heart to be used in leadership, there's nothing holding you back. There's not any unconfessed sin. There's not a pattern of sin that you're not, that you're not rejecting. And you're not living and giving it to God and saying, I've got to repent of it. Live your life in such a way that if God would choose you, there's nothing holding you back from God using you. And I believe that if you do that, we can be going forward, as it says in verse 7. The Word of God will keep going forward. More disciples will be growing and multiplying. And number three, others will return to obedience. So this is how I'd like for us to close this morning. I'd like for us to just take a moment and pray. But as we are praying, I want you to pray about those three things. Is there a problem that you need to pray about? Is there a uh, situation where you haven't been praying for the leaders of the church? Pray for them. And number three, maybe God's wanting to use you in the days ahead. So we, I want to invite us all to bow our head and to close our eyes. But as we do that, I'm going to ask our deacons and deaconesses to come forward. I'm going to ask our deacons to come forward. Go ahead and stand right up front here. If you're a deacon in this church, you're a deaconess in this church, I want you to come up, stand right in the middle here so I can come behind you. And I want us to be able to lay hands on you and to pray over you as we close this service today. And I want you as a body of believers to know who they are so that you can pray for them. So I know I told you to bow your head and close your eyes, but get a good look of who they are. Uh, I'm going to ask Mike to come up as well.